0: In studio today, BERT is joined by leading cannabis rights and community activist Dana Larson. With this year's 420 Vancouver event being the largest to date, taking place post-legalization in Canada and during a federal election year, we explore the questions of whether 420 is more celebration than protest, along with diving into the issues that many argue are yet to be addressed with the current legalization, championing psychedelics and the broad legalization of other drugs. Dana also discusses the safety measures that need to be more widely put in place across the country. Building upon his newly launched harm reduction street drug testing community
1: service, GetYourDrugsTested.com, we go now to Bert in conversation. Good afternoon. Welcome to License to Chill. This afternoon's guest is Dana Larson. He's a cannabis rights activist, politician, a retailer... And a legend. Hey, thanks for having me here. You are a legend in this industry. I got to tell you, I've, first time I met you today was a few minutes ago, but I've read about you over the years, and you've really been one of those people who have been a true pioneer in this industry. And when I think of you, I think of a quote by Benjamin Franklin, which he said once many years ago before we were born. It is the first responsibility of every citizen to question authority, and in the world of cannabis, you've done that, and you, I really take my hat off to you in terms of your activism and being involved and so committed to moving this whole file forward and resulted in the legalization of cannabis in Canada. you're part of the, you're, you're one of the leaders in this whole field, so welcome to License to Chill. Well, thanks for having me and for those kind words.
0: And uh, yeah, we've accomplished a lot. I don't think we're by any means done yet in our battle for cannabis liberation or ending the whole war on drug users. But uh, we've
1: accomplished a lot, and we've still got a lot of work to do. So, how did you get into this? Did you just wake up as a little boy deciding you're going to do this, and when you got older, or how did you? What was the tipping point for you to get involved with the cannabis activation movement? Was it university, or was it go back?
0: I started smoking pot between grade 11 and grade 12 in high school, uh, and that kind of got me interested in activism. I read the famous book The Emperor Wears No Clothes by Jack Herrera, uh, which was one of the first things out there about the history and, and of cannabis and, and a lot of the hidden history of, of uh, hemp and medicinal cannabis and things like that. I actually started writing letters to members of parliament, and I had a binder that I kept, and I would write letters, and if they would answer me, I would keep them organized like that. Uh, And when I started at university a year later, I I met some other like-minded people, and I founded a club on campus called the League for Ethical Action on Drugs, a LEAD. And I did that for four years. We would bring in speakers and get people talking about this issue, and um, that was really where it started. Although, you know, a few years ago, I was looking through like my childhood school projects and stuff, and I found this thing I did in grade five where they asked us to pick three international resources and show on a map where they went around the world and how things. I don't know why my teacher let me do this, but I did cannabis, opium, and cocaine. And I don't. I, I wasn't really into drugs as a young person or, or that, but I think I, I just like the sort of anti-authoritarian aspect of it or the just looking at things from a different angle of it. But I think that was definitely a sign of the direction that my life was going to be going in. So were you
1: born in Vancouver. That's right, and high school Vancouver. Yeah, the whole bit. Yeah, yeah. So you ran for a member of parliament in West Vancouver.
0: Yeah, West Vancouver Sunshine Coast. Huh? I was
1: living on the Sunshine Coast at the
0: time. Okay. Uh, that was in uh, in 2008. Uh, well, I ran for a member of parliament before that with the Marijuana Party uh, in 2000 uh, federally, 2000 provincially, 2001. Uh, but my first serious thing was with the NDP in 2008. It did not go very well. Uh, I'd been in the party for five years, and I tried twice before to get the nomination in my riding, and each time I'd come in second, but someone else had won the the local vote. It's not a riding where the NDP normally does very well, so you're more carrying the banner for the party than expecting to get elected, so there's less people pushing to get that vote. Uh, But I became a candidate in 2008, and, uh, I ended up having to resign my nomination. Uh, the liberals put out a bunch of videos and things that I'd done, nothing of which I'm particularly ashamed of, me smoking cannabis and taking LSD and things like that, videos that I'd made for pot TV several years earlier. But it caused a big, uh, uh kerfuffle within the party, uh, during an election campaign. This was kind of my first introduction to Canadians. Uh, and, and so they made me resign for my nomination. Uh, and it was very uh, challenging and I think disappointing for a lot of people in the cannabis movement who had sort of looked at the NDP as our voice for the marijuana movement and them accepting me as a candidate was sort of them, you know, acknowledging that we we deserve access and that we're part of the movement. And then for me to be uh, forced to resign, uh, it it made people resentful of the party and, and made a couple of few steps backwards there. So it was not uh, something that worked out the way I'd hoped, but I've continued my political work in the NDP and other areas since then and have had some more successful efforts than that 2008 campaign.
1: Well, given the passage of time, that's pretty minor compared to some of the stuff that's going on in politics today.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, it really just depends how, when when, and how things come out, right? I mean, it, it's, it's in the middle of a campaign. Uh, so the liberals put out this video where they took all my greatest hits from pot TV, edited it down to like a 15-second thing of me looking like a crazy drug addict or whatever – and, uh, and so it, it, uh, it didn't, it didn't go well. But I actually also ran for the leadership of the BC NDP in 2011 against Adrian Dixon and current Premier John Horgan. And that actually went really well. And although I think they were nervous about me launching that campaign, they were worried I was going to discredit the BC NDP or act like a crazy person and, and, and make them look bad or something. But actually, that campaign went really well. I obviously didn't become leader of the party, but I think I was able to, rehabilitate my image a little bit within the party and also to help bring up these issues of drug policy and cannabis reform and show why they're important at the provincial level. Uh, and, you know, I'm not – I mean, I've been an NDP member for a very long time, but I'm not particularly partisan on these issues. I am happy to criticize the NDP when we go wrong. And for me, I'd really really—I'd rather that it was a policy that every party had adopted and that we, we could choose partisan other issues because they all had – Great cannabis policies and
1: great drug policies, but obviously we're not there yet. Yeah, we're working on that. Now, when I read about you in the media lately, it's all around 420. And will there be a 420 again next year at Sunset Beach? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There's going to
0: be a 420 next year. Uh, It would happen whether or not, even if I said we're canceling it, people would still gather and do stuff. It's not just dependent on us, but... But yeah, it'll happen next year. I'd say it's a very good chance of it being in Sunset Beach. Uh, I'm not against the theoretically moving the event somewhere else, just nowhere else to go. You know, we were at the art gallery. We started off at Victory Square Park, but we're at the art gallery for pretty much all of 420 history. And uh, a few years ago in 2016, we decided to move to Sunset Beach Park because the art gallery was getting too crowded. It was becoming a health and safety concern. There was so many people there. We couldn't offer emergency services properly. People couldn't get to the stage and hear what was going on. We were blocking off four major streets uh, downtown for most of the day. And uh, and really it was the issue of people not being able to ha- get help if they needed help. So moving to Sunset Beach Park at the time, uh, the police and most other authorities were saying this is a good decision. This is a better spot for it. And it is a great spot. The main challenge with it, 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 well, there's two things, is that it's in the early spring. So in a park, it, it, the, it's more likely to be raining in April. You know, if those kids who who were gathering at 4.20 had been gathering at like 5.30 or something, it would have worked a lot better for our celebrations every year if it was in the middle of the summer or, or later on in the year. And and the park board has rules against smoking in the parks. And, of course, they have the power to ex- offer an exemption to that for an event just like you can't drink in the parks normally, but they can give you a permit for that. But at a very close vote, uh, in, in 2017, they chose not to give us a permit and they actually voted <coughs> to, uh, to not allow any cannabis events in any park ever. And so to me, that means it's not really about being at sunset beach park. They could say, well, maybe you don't, we don't want you here, but could you go over here? Here's a better spot for whatever reason. But, uh, this was the 25th anniversary uh, this year. Uh, it was a massive event with over 150,000 people showing up. We're the only unlicensed protest in the city that covers all of the cost of the park board and all of the costs to the city involved in the event, traffic control, uh, any damage to the park grass, any security issues, emergency services. We pay for the ambulances when they're needed. The only thing we didn't pay was the policing bill. And I'm not really against giving the police some money for for covering some of the event, but our policing bill is $160,000, which is over a dollar per person that shows up. If you look at any other event in the city, like say Italian day, which gets 400,000 people and their entire policing bill was $40,000. So about 10 cents a person. And our event is not, there's not a lot of arrests. The police don't do a lot other than standing around in circles. We don't need, I don't think 11 times the policing of other typical events in the city Uh, But, you know, I'll tell you, I do a lot of different things over the year, but 420 is the one that gets me the most hate, the most negative publicity, the worst interviews with the media. Normally, media is pretty fair when they talk to me, but around 420, their facts are all wrong. The questioning is very hostile. People are quite aggressive about this event, as if we're somehow draining the city's budget by putting on this protest. and you know the reality is the the cannabis community in vancouver brings in a lot of money uh the incredible fees they charge to dispensaries uh, could bring in a lot of revenue and uh and we have the right to protest and gather like anybody else and uh and so it's it's a challenge because uh it's a frustrating event it actually costs a ton of money uh to put this thing on even with the the booth sales and the and the people that buy sponsorships and that kind of stuff every year we're in the hole for tens of thousands of dollars that we have to raise afterwards to help cover the event, which I'm happy to do, but it's frustrating that there's this perception that I'm somehow cashing in on 420. It's a big money-making scheme and we're all getting rich and trashing the park and we don't care about anything. And the reality is, is very, very different. So it's a wonderful event for those who are on the ground and who attend and people have a great time. And I think most of them are very grateful to have this kind of open market, the chance to, to sample and purchase and, and, and enjoy cannabis from hundreds of different sources of cannabis products of all kinds. It's, it's an incredibly unique event. There's nothing else like 420 at that scale in the world. At 420 in Vancouver, that is the freest the cannabis culture is anywhere on earth. There's nowhere else where you can smoke, access, and enjoy cannabis in such an open and free manner than in Vancouver on April 20th. And I'm really proud that we've created that, that safe space. And it didn't happen overnight. It took years and years of effort, not so much on my part, but other activists, David Malmo Levine really was very influential in getting that going and creating a safe space. We started off with just a couple of people buying and selling cannabis in the middle of a circle to keep the police out of one year. And, and they would slowly grow like that. And then one year, somebody would bring a bag of joints to sell. And then another year, somebody brought a table and set it up. And then soon there was five tables and then there was a hundred tables. And we had to start booking spaces and charging people a bit of money to help cover the cost for the event. But It's really grown very organically, very dynamically, and I hope it lasts for another 25 years. I don't see any reason for this festival to stop. I'm sure it'll continue to change and transform as time goes on, and that's a good thing. But uh, I think it's a real benefit to Vancouver and something that we should be proud of that we have in this city,
1: uh, this unique and wonderful cannabis festival. So what was the genesis of 420? Did somebody just sit around and say, let's celebrate this and we'll do it on 420?
0: Or who was the...
1: Who was the architect of this?
0: Well, the original 420 was some high school students in California who would gather at 420 after class to smoke cannabis. and this After became, class was over. Yeah, and they, and they think they had some after-school stuff, so they would gather at 420, and it became for them kind of their internal little code word uh, joking thing among themselves, 420. And then some of them joined the, the, the Deadheads and the Grateful Dead tour, and so it spread within the Grateful Dead community, and that spread it around. A High Times magazine picked it up. Used to be a thing in the back of High Times magazine that the, the High Times 100, where you could send in a dollar, but they would donate as Normal, and they would list things uh, that people wanted. And 420 started showing up there. Uh, but Vancouver's there was a few other April 20th 420 events out there, but the Vancouver one is the longest continual 420 event in the world. So nothing else has been happening every year for 25 years on April 20th, except in Vancouver and uh and when they started it tw- you know 25 years ago it, 420 was kind of an insider thing still in the weed community now my mom knows what 420 is and every you know it's a very common mainstream thing right but when they started it was it was really kind of an inside kind of a thing for the cannabis community and the first 420 was was very small it was at uh, uh Victory Square Park at Hastings and Cambie uh organized by a girl named Adana Rozek who was manager of the Hemp BC store at the time and and another woman uh, uh, they got a speaker I got some speaker system and a ghetto blaster and had some music and it was mostly I think a couple of dozen people gathering in the park to to smoke cannabis and enjoy the day I'm actually the only person who has been to every single one of Vancouver 420 events since the very first one really I wasn't involved in organizing or putting it on for the first few years and I've gotten more and more involved as it's gone on but I'm lucky enough to have been at the first one and to have been in Vancouver every April 20th since then And so it's been remarkable to see this thing grow in a very grassroots, natural fashion. There's no big corporate sponsors. There's no buddy pushing it or we don't really even promote it very much. It promotes itself by word of mouth. We put up a few posters, but really it's an event that has its own energy and its own existence. And if we tried to cancel it, it would change if why we weren't involved. But I'm guaranteed that something big would happen in Vancouver on April 20th. Even if we, if even if the organizing crew there wasn't involved now, people would still be gathering and doing cannabis activities. I think the event's really got a life of its own,
1: and and that's a celebration of freedom for cannabis. Well, we see it as a as a protest and a festival, a protestival
0: is what we call it, right? Because, you know, we're, it's an it's a massive act of civil disobedience to gather in that way. Uh, just to smoke cannabis openly, to buy and sell and share cannabis. And really for a very long time, the the climax of the event has been at 420, giving away hundreds of of joints to people and sharing cannabis openly like that to make sure everybody who wants to enjoy cannabis can do so. And uh, so I think it's a wonderful example of peaceful civil disobedience. And there used to be arrests at 420 sometimes, and the police used to harass people and You know, the Vancouver police never really wanted to wade into the crowd and start cracking heads over people smoking joints, but they would pick people off at the edge of the crowd. The very first years, there would be a lot of, you know, police there early. Uh, It was very, it's still controversial now, but it was controversial in a different kind of way, I guess. But uh, really, we've established a good relationship with the police over the years. And although, you know, I got some issues with the VPD, but in terms of how they deal with cannabis, I, I think they're one of the most enlightened police forces in the world. And uh, and we plan and organize with everybody now. We we meet with all the city officials. We meet with all the park officials. We meet with the emergency services and the ambulances and the VPD and the park rangers and every single department we could work with to plan out this huge and complicated event and make sure it's safe and, and responsibly done. And the only rules we break are smoking cannabis in the park and buying and selling and sharing cannabis. And otherwise, we try to make it as responsible as possible and cover
1: All the bills that we can. Hmm. So, what do you say to those people who uh, argue that now that cannabis is legal, uh, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary that 420 has lost its raison d'être, its reason for being? What are your your thoughts about that, or is it always going to be kind of like New Year's or some other event that we always celebrate to celebrate uh, where we've come from, the journey of it, the history of it? Well, if you ask anybody in the cannabis
0: community, they'll say cannabis isn't really legal, and this is prohibition 2.0, and we still have a lot of work and a lot of complaining and a lot of issues involved. But even if we had the cannabis laws that were ideal, I mean, the ideal cannabis laws would allow 420 to continue as it's been, but it wouldn't be a, a illegal anymore. So the being pro, I mean, the protest aspect ideally wouldn't wouldn't be required, but you know, I mean, even if we're not protesting things in Canada, I mean, look, look at the Pride Festival, for instance, the Pride Parade. They get mad sometimes when I compare these two events to each other, but to me, there seems like a lot of parallels. You know, the Pride Parade started off as a protest, a militant protest against police harassing, raiding bathhouses, houses, going after gay people, and uh, and certainly under Canadian law, there's the the government is very supportive of, of equal rights in the LGBT community, and there's no there's discrimination maybe at the individual level in Canada, but in terms of the government, there's no formal effort to, to push down that community, but around the world there is, and they still describe their event as a protest and as a parade and a celebration and all of these things. I don't see any contradiction there. So, I mean, we would still be protesting, you know, the bad things that are happening to cannabis users in other parts of the world and drawing attention to that. But to me, the idea that now that cannabis is legal, we should cancel the one big cannabis event in the city seems kind of backwards. It seems to me that if cannabis is legal, there should be more cannabis events in the city. They should be less controversial. They should be able to get their permits more easily. And then instead of there only being 420, there should be a bunch of events. And you shouldn't have to be a marijuana-themed event to have cannabis access. Like any event that's got a beer garden, in my opinion, should be able to apply for a cannabis garden where you can use cannabis in some kind restricted area or some kind of rules. But instead, people are like, well, now it's legal. Let's get rid of all the cannabis events and shut down all the cannabis shops. And it's like, well, that's not legalization. That seems the opposite to me. So so I, I think 420 still has an important role to play, and I think it will have a, an important role to play uh, for many, many years to come.
1: Well, sticking with 420 for just a couple more minutes here. Um, uh, In terms of the city, you get cooperation from the police and the city and they allow the event to happen. you got fire people there, you got ambulance people there, and the event happens. But if I was to go out and buy a bunch of booze, get a band and set up a a music festival down on a beach, I'd be shut down in a nanosecond. Sounds like you've got a great working relationship with the city folks to make this happen.
0: Well, you know, there was actually a a beer on the beach protest a couple of years ago. Uh, It wasn't nearly the size of 420, but a bunch of people didn't like the rules around drinking on beaches that it was prohibited. They went down to Sunset Beach Park and they all drank beer. They said it was a much smaller crowd. They all drank beer openly to protest this. Nobody was arrested. And in fact, a few months later, the park board was changing the bylaws to allow you to drink beer on the beach. And so a couple of dozen people had a protest, like, like you're describing, an alcohol protest, and the result was they changed the bylaws instantly to accommodate their, their desire to do that. And, you know, if, if alcohol was illegal and, and these, it was impossible to get a permit to do any of these things. And these events would happen without permits, but you can get a permit really easily for an alcohol event. You can get a permit to do these things. And if, if we, if we could get a permit, we would get one. We've applied for one and asked for one and they refuse it to us. And we still voluntarily pay all these costs anyway. So, so, it's not, I mean, people say, oh, yeah, like I said, if, if we we'll all just drank beer or alcohol like that, but it's a very different situation. Uh, and we would love to be more in, in within the legal system and to be accepted like that. Uh, but, you know, if you want to smoke, if you want to drink beer on the beach and listen to music, it's very easy to do, very easy to get a permit. And often the city will give you money to subsidize your event. Uh, a lot of the big events, of the, the Pride Parade, the uh, the Italian Day uh, another large the Car Free Day they Freak serve days. they serve beer and alcohol at these events they yeah. get permits for their beer gardens and everyone's happy with that I love all those events I'm not trying to put down other events when I compare us to them I just wish that we could get the same kind of equal treatment and and, and coverage of some of our costs that these other things get and we're we're doing everything we can to integrate 420 into the system and you know it was just one vote one of the Green Party commissioners on the park board voted with the right wing NPA party to deny us a permit. If that one vote had gone differently, we would have had a permit for the last three years. there would be a lot calmer and a lot less conflict. So it's really about, you know, municipal politics and, and that kind of stuff ultimately, but we'll get a permit one day. And once they give one to us, they'll never not give it to us after that. Right. So it just takes the right vote, right people on, on park board or council, the right vote actually for, for the next year, I'm in the process of trying to apply to become a civic event and get civic status. And any any of the big events in the city, if you get over 100,000 people, if your event is part of a, a protest or a celebration that's bigger than just your one event, which yeah. 420 certainly is, you're supposed to be able to qualify for this. And the city is supposed to give you funding to help cover things like policing costs, which have gotten out of control. And uh and so I don't see any reason why we should be treated any differently. Will they give us that civic status? I
1: don't know. It'll probably be controversial, but I'm going to apply for it and then let them make that decision. You know, you've got nothing lo- wrong, uh, nothing to lose by applying for it uh, and, and and test it. But it should become an event that uh, we can do that with. Because the same thing with beer, uh, beer festivals and music festivals where we consume beer. And to me, cannabis is now legal. We should be able to do it. Well, you
0: know, they say they don't like us smoking on the beach, and the smoke issue is the big thing, and. I don't want people smoking in parks every day either. Like, I'm happy that parks are smoke-free. I think that's appropriate. But once in a while or once a year or for a special event, you should be able to get a permit to do this. And, you know, if you look at the Vancouver fireworks, the smoke that they put out is incredibly toxic. It's full of heavy metals and particulates, all kinds of studies showing that children should not be at ground level for the fireworks. This smoke stays in the air for days. And there's a lot of research showing some serious health concerns And so if you're going to allow that and subsidize it and promote it, multiple fireworks shows regularly, they even do fireworks when the forest fire season was happening and the city was covered in forest fire smoke. They were like, we're doing the fireworks anyways, we don't care. And so if you're not going to be worried about that, but you're all freaked out about a little bit of cannabis smoke that dissipates very quickly on 420, your issue isn't really smoke. Your issue is that you don't like cannabis and cannabis users and you want them to go away. And that's not an appropriate way to make city policy.
1: Yeah. With respect to music festival, that we, my company does liquor licensing, and we license things like Pemberton Music Festival and other events, so I've always found it fascinating that whether it be an indoor concert at a stadium that we're involved with, or an outdoor stadium like Pemberton, uh, or up in the interior, where we do everything we can to try and stop somebody from smuggling a beer out of a beer garden. And the liquor inspectors and the police inspectors are right there. Somebody carries a beer out of a beer garden. Heaven forbid he's got a beer, an open can of beer. But you look over the mosh pit in front of the stage and there's this blue haze hanging over the stay, over the, the people in the mosh pit smoking. The police don't care and it was accepted. And that's just the way it is. And to me, that way, when I look at something like 420 and compare it to that, to me, they should just allow it, recognize it, license the event, have it, and make sure you got the safety measures in place. Well, sounds good to me.
0: You know, that kind of hypocrisy exists a lot. The P&E, we were talking with the P&E about moving our event to there. It's like the Playland, Vancouver's big uh, space for events and, and rides and all this kind of stuff. And uh, and they rejected us being there, and said we don't want people smoking at the P and E. But at the same time, they were advertising—I forget the name now of the of the band—but there was a group playing at the P and E, and they were advertising it as like on 420, as the 420 have a smoking good time with with images of smoke rising up. And I pointed to the hypocrisy of that that they're they're telling they don't want cannabis smoke they're promoting event with a real wink wink nudge nudge come and smoke on four twenty at the p and e and get high while watching the entertainment, so they started putting out all these we don't want anybody smoking and they changed all their advertising and got rid of all the four twenty references and smoke references. but you're right, every concert people are using cannabis, people use cannabis all over the place, and you know if they said we don't want you to use it here, go over there and use it there, we'd say fine, like we're happy to follow reasonable regulations and reasonable rules uh but if the if the, if the thing is you can't use cannabis anywhere and any any time and you're prohibited from doing it at all well we're not going to follow those kind of prohibitive rules we're going to make our own rules and, and follow those and that's what we've been doing
1: now uh, switching gears a little bit here we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of legalization of cannabis how do you think it's gone so far
0: not very well I mean, it depends how you look at it. You know, in some ways, it, it's prohibition 2.0. In some areas, the penalties are worse now than they were under legal, under prohibition. Uh, if, if you're a medical cannabis user, you're probably having a harder time accessing your medicinal cannabis now than you were a, a year ago or two years ago. Uh, it, it's really been a corporate takeover or an effort to have a corporate takeover in many ways where these billion dollar companies are are pushing out uh, the cannabis community. The rules are such that people who have been involved in the cannabis industry can't participate always in legalization. Uh, I prefer to look at it maybe as legalization 1.0 and that we're going to hopefully get better versions and maybe legalization version 4.2 or something is going to be, uh, you know, the one where we're, we're happy with it. Uh, but it's a long process. And I would just, you know, I wish that it had started – the legalization began with an apology and that a recognition that, that prohibition itself was always the real problem, that prohibition was rooted in racism and ignorance and bigotry. It's from another time, from a century ago, and it's time for us just to close that book on the past and acknowledge the harm and move on. But that didn't happen. The legalization we've got is predicated on all the same principles that prohibition was, that cannabis is harmful and dangerous we need to actively keep it away from children. or Our society will collapse. Uh, the cannabis users are not really good people uh, and the cannabis growers and that are, are a dangerous community. And, and I think that the, that predication has created the system where uh, they, they don't want people who were involved with cannabis before legalization to, to continue. Uh, and where a lot of the stigmatization and, and prohibition and punishments of cannabis are continuing And it's all up and down the system. The federal laws, also provincial and municipal laws, are also uh, extremely punitive all over the place. They're just talking to Manitoba, they're going to pass a thing where you won't be able to consume a cannabis edible in public. So that's not even about smoking. That's about not wanting you to take your CBD capsule while you're walking down the street or something. That's just crazy stigmatization. And you know, here in British Columbia, one of the most cannabis-friendly provinces in the country, supposedly, And our NDP government, uh, I'm very disappointed in because I know John Horgan fairly well. And before he was premier, he was telling me all the stuff he was going to do about cannabis and how good it was going to be. And they brought in some of the most restrictive laws in the country. Okay, so Manitoba and Quebec say you can't grow your four legal plants at at home. And now Quebec's that had that law overturned in the court recently. We'll see what happens. But in British Columbia, they say, okay, you can grow your four cannabis plants, But your landlord has to sign off on it, even if you're growing them in your backyard or on your balcony. I don't see why your landlord has to know or agree to what plants you're going to legally grow in your backyard. But also nobody can see your legal cannabis plants. If one of your cannabis leaves is poking over the fence and somebody can see it from the street or can see your cannabis plant growing on your balcony, you can get a $5,000 fine and go to jail for up to three months. Those penalties double If it happens again, so six months in jail, $10,000 fine. There's no harm from somebody seeing your cannabis plant. Some people have said, well, it's a security thing. They don't want anybody stealing it. Well, first of all, people, I can throw $20 bills in my front lawn if I want to. That's my own choice, but my own possessions. But if they want to make a law about security, they could make a law about security. You can have an entirely secured barred greenhouse, but your plants are still visible, you're breaking the rules, but you put up a Chinese curtain or like a, you know, a single uh, sheet or whatever to block the plant doesn't offer any security, but you're not violating the law. It's purely about stigma and these rules, I won't get into all of them, but they go up and down the line. There are tons of these kind of regulations in place, even areas, or maybe there should be some kind of penalty when you compare it to alcohol, the penalties are off the charts. So if you get caught smoking uh, a joint in a canoe, compared to getting caught drinking alcohol in a canoe. You're not supposed to drink or use things in a canoe. You get caught drinking beer in a canoe, you probably just get a warning, but you might get a fine. I think the ticket's like $200 or $150 or something. You get caught smoking a joint in a canoe. Once again, $5,000 fine, three months in jail for the first offense, doubles for the second offense. You know, I, I got to say, I'd rather be in the canoe with the pot smoker than the drinker. But even if you want to penalize it, why isn't the penalty just the same as with alcohol? But instead they're just off the charts in comparison parents can give their children alcohol at any age if they want to in limited amounts or whatever, but you're allowed to give your children alcohol plenty do. If you want to share uh, some cannabis with your 17 year old child, you can go to jail and lose your kids and that's trafficking to a minor. And it, it, there's no discretion for parents to, to make these decisions at a fam- as a family or share these experiences with their children at an appropriate age. Uh, and so those are all, and so it goes on and on and, and and they're allowing provinces are allowing cities basically to opt out of legalization. So a lot of cities are like well we don't want this in our community and there's nothing else cities aren't allowed to say they're allowed to put in pretty restrictive bylaws but they're not allowed just to ban legal things like that. That's not that's not allowed. And so there's a lot of aspects in that regard that need to be dealt with and and said some of the penalties that are in the, in this uh, federally also are very extreme. Uh, so there's a lot of problems with legalization, but they're not not—they're not going to be interested in changing. they They put a lot of work into writing these laws. They're not going to want to change them, I think, at least for another five years or so. Probably the wave of changes will come with some court decisions because some of these things are unconstitutional laws that need to be attacked that way. So I think just like we've done before, it'll be some court cases over the coming five years that then maybe after the next federal election – uh, we will be see a government willing to then relook at this again and make change, but we're looking at decades ahead of, of fighting and conflict over cannabis laws and the drug laws in general, and trying to get better better laws in Canada. You know, I'm also sympathetic that we're the first country in the world, other than Uruguay, at the federal level, to put these kind of laws in place, and so you know, it's maybe not reasonable to expect that the very first country is going to put a perfect system in place, but it's very disappointing because we really were looking forward to a day when the prisons are opened and the cannabis users and, and the cannabis community are released and where the government says we were wrong and you were right and we're sorry about this and we're going to make it better. And I think there should be compensation. If you went to, they're offering pardons right now for people who, who went to jail. I think you should be getting some money. If you went to jail, especially for cannabis possession, not so many Canadians go to jail for cannabis possession now, though it does happen, but historically, People were getting six-month mandatory minimum sentences in the 60s and 70s, and those people are still around, and those things have lifelong effects, you know, getting that kind of sentence at a young age. So I would like to see, yeah, I'd like to see some kind of compensation made to people that, that suffered in this way, not millions of dollars, but some kind of effort. And that could even come out of cannabis taxes, so it doesn't affect other taxpayers or whatever, right? But
1: but that that's a I think we're a long way from that acknowledgement. I agree. i I look upon cannabis as as a parallel to how we came out of prohibition. And we came out of prohibition be, be, because people want to have access to alcohol, and then governments all across Canada and the United States stepped in to place barriers uh, between the product people want to have access to and the product that they voted to have access to, and they brought in uh, restrictions and limitations and everything else. In British Columbia, here we used to have bars that, in hotels particularly, where you had no sight lines to the outside, there were solid brick walls. Men, men and escorts went in one door; women went in the other door. No, I'm sorry. Men went in one door; women and escorts went in the other door. The liquor stores were all closed off. You walked in, you went up to a counter. You wrote down a, a code number for uh, Canadian rye on a piece of paper. You gave it to the clerk, he went in the back, got the bottle, put it in a brown paper bag, and out it went. But over time, those laws changed. We used to, in the, When I was general manager of the liquor branch, we had a policy that the most number of TV monitors a restaurant could have were three. And because the entertainment in a restaurant was supposed to be the food on the plate, not the booze, not the TV games and the sports and all that sort of stuff. I think cannabis is going to have to go the same way, and I think there's a comfort level that politicians are going to have to get to around this in the community that this is not the evil thing that everybody thinks it is. But right now, we see from our end so many restrictions around this, so many um, uh, control mechanisms that it is not helping bring this product forward, but it's also just propping up, in my mind, the black market.
0: Well, and there's also a couple of things about alcohol prohibition that, that are worth mentioning. One is that during alcohol prohibition, alcohol drinkers were never treated as badly as cannabis users and exactly. drug users are. Exactly. There was never, nobody was going to jail for possession of alcohol. The the punishments and the level of, of stigma around uh, cannabis use and other drug use is way harsher than it ever was with alcohol. And I think that a lot of governments with legalization and and, and businesses and that are seeing this as a big cash grab, right? We're going to get rich. You can grow this plant for almost nothing and sell it for $10, $15 a gram, oh, we're all going to cash in on this. And they're learning that, that it's not really like that and that the the money is, is not going to be there in the same way. And we're seeing, a, I've seen in, in New Brunswick, some cannabis legal cannabis shops have shut down and, and given up. They thought they had the golden ticket to cash in and it turns out they're losing money and they're going out of business. Uh, here in BC, every gram has to go from the licensed producer to the provincial warehouse and get handled and sorted by the provincial uh, union, and then it goes to the store, and that adds a whole bunch of costs and delays. I've seen people buying cannabis pre-rolled joints, and they look at the label, and it was packaged like eight months earlier. So that pre-rolled joint's been sitting in a plastic tube by itself for like eight months or nine months before it gets sold, pretty dry. Which is, and it doesn't make any sense either, because there, there's a real lack of supposedly a lack of quality cannabis and a lack of not enough marijuana out there. Yet it takes this long to get from the from the grower. To the shelf and now when they're going to be legalizing creams and suppositories and capsules and edibles and every one of those products is going to have to go through the provincial warehouse before going to cons- before going to stores and then to consumers that's going to be a nightmare there's nothing else like that alcohol they treat it like that but cannabis is really very different than alcohol in terms of the number of ways it's available you know i don't know what the equivalent is from like w- what the alcohol version of a cbd capsule is for instance it doesn't really it's not really yeah. an even parallel, right? And so, you know, let's say London Drugs and other big chains are going to be carrying cannabis products, which I think is fine. But they're all going to have to go through the BC warehouse first. Like, yeah. it's going to be very complicated when there's so many products. And, and so many
1: products with such a short shelf life.
0: And, and the quality control around the legal products is, is not there. I mean, I'm seeing people posting on on Twitter pictures of moldy buds, pictures of buds with dead insects in them. Uh, uh, people getting shake that just looks like it says no, there's no bud at all. It's just shake and they're paying premium amounts for it. And the retailers don't know what they're selling because they don't get to look at it or examine it unless they buy it and open it and look at it themselves. They don't really know what they're selling and they can't take refunds. And if you're a retailer, when you get a bunch of crappy cannabis, usually it's often impossible to return it and you're not legally allowed to sell it at a loss. So you can't be like, well, we got all this crap, let's ditch it for half price and at least recoup some of our losses that's against the rules. You've got to sell it for at least what you paid for it. And so it's, it's, it, there's a lot of restrictions. I said, everyone thought they were going to be cashing in and getting rich. The real economic benefit of legal cannabis should be that people who use cannabis can spend less money on cannabis and more money on rent and groceries and movies and other fun stuff that they want to do. Legalization should mean a price crash. And if they want to get rid of the black market, and underground sales, make legal marijuana a dollar a gram. Which is still, by the way, incredibly expensive for a plant product. There's no other plant out there, that, like vegetable product, that you pay like $400 a pound for. I yeah. mean, that's still, a dollar a gram is ridiculously expensive by one area. And yet, it, people would be thrilled. And that would, I mean, my dispensary couldn't compete with that. And I would love it. I mean, I, I, I make my living selling cannabis, but I'd be thrilled if my store went bankrupt or not went bankrupt, but couldn't compete with the legal market. Then I know my job is done and my store isn't needed anymore. You know, I'm not, I didn't get in this so I could sell cannabis and I could have a legal shop. I got into this so that it could be available to everybody. And I've always said, you know, for my stores, I want to keep operating as long as I'm needed. As long as there's a lineup out my door, clearly I'm offering something that the legal system is not able to compete with and not offering but if the day comes when the legal system is so great, cannabis is so affordable and so accessible and I'm not needed, I'd love to retire and move on to other areas of, of drug policy reform. But you know, they don't want legal cannabis to be a dollar because they think everyone's going to start smoking it and we'll all be high and it's too cheap and everything. But Cannabis is wonderful and it really should be a lot more affordable. And there's room yeah. for, even in a $1 a gram model, there's room for more expensive. You can get a coffee for pennies and make it at home or buy it cheap, or you can go to Starbucks and get a fancy $8 coffee. So there's still be room for more expensive cannabis, like if you can use it in the place or if it's got a special you know, history behind it or some unique thing. People will still pay a premium sometimes, but- the, the, the regular cannabis, the basic stuff, it should be very, very cheap and available, uh, and, and as long as it's not, that's really still a kind of prohibition. Very high prices and taxation are a form of, of economic prohibition.
1: Absolutely, and we, uh, on that point, to me, I, I, looked, I watched the government, so at all three levels, pile on to the cannabis file as an opportunity to make money. They saw a great opportunity to make money, whether it be through fees, taxation, application fees, business license fees, whatever, uh, to make money off of cannabis, just like they've done with liquor, but at a higher level, which makes it far harder to get into business. We had one client that went to a government cannabis store and bought eight samples of cannabis, took them to a private lab and had them tested. One came back positive for pesticides, one the a uh, Chemical levels were just right on. But the other ones, all the THC or uh, CBD levels were wrong on the government package. Uh, And uh, so I found that interesting. But I I just find that a lot of people are going to stay with who they've been getting supplies from for now because the price points through the traditional black market are much lower than it is through government.
0: Well, I would agree. And, uh, and, and if people were able to grow more openly and have more ability to grow their own, not everybody's going to grow their own, but some folks are going to grow a bit extra and share it or sell it at a reasonable cost to their friends and that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, this whole money-making, you know, we kind of sold legalization as, oh, cause we're trying to put the benefits. Oh, you're going to make lots of money. Governments are going to cash in. And that was part of our effort to convince people to legalize it. But The real savings should be both in people being able to afford it and in police budgets going down. And there's another weird thing about legalization that it's meant a bonanza for police budgets. They've been getting hundreds of millions of dollars in extra money to deal with legalization. And we've actually got a kind of a crisis in Canada when it comes to policing. Even under the Harper government, they were having national summits to talk about how policing bills are out of control. Cities can't pay their policing costs. And every year they eat up more and more of civic budgets. And so they can't afford other services because they're paying the cops. And, and, uh, and so legalization of cannabis, well, that would be a good time to be like, okay, we're taking this off your plate. We're also going to take away five or 10% of your budget. Cause we don't need to enforce this anymore. Instead, the police are getting more money. And so that's, it's, they're trying to sell. I think that's really an effort to buy the police off, right? Because the police and the policing unions, not individual officers, maybe But the policing organizations, the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, uh, and the policing unions are the biggest pushers for prohibition and against legalization. And so I think giving them a bunch of money was a way of just kind of shutting them up, right? Okay, we're going to legalize. Maybe you don't like that. Here's $100 million. Let us do it, right? And I think that was kind of how it it went down. Uh, But I'm hoping that over the coming years, as police are recognizing across Canada, they're now in the media saying, you know, it wasn't actually such a big deal. We didn't really see any big increase in crime. We didn't see any big increase in people getting high and driving and causing accidents. None of these worst case scenarios actually manifested themselves. Maybe now it's time to look at well, okay, maybe you don't need quite all that money. We can take some of this back and put it into other services that people need. Uh, you know, I'm not against police or anything, but the police budget has got a. Be based in reality, and the policing budgets have been out of control, and legalization should mean a little less money for the police and a little more money for other services.
1: Yeah. Now, coming back to you, you have an existing dispensary up on uh, Thurlow Street, um, and you've applied for a cannabis store. How's that going? Well, we had two dispensaries
0: originally, right? Our our oldest location uh, at Hastings and and Campbell had been open over 10 years, and uh, we were unable to get a business license there from the city because it's an industrial zone, and the previous city council, and their infinite wisdom, decided that industrial zones were forbidden from having a cannabis dispensary, no exceptions, no ability to appeal that. And so we fought in court along with many other dispensaries in the city, and we went to the Supreme Court of BC, and ultimately we would have been in contempt of court, if we'd stayed open. And so us and many others uh, shut down yeah. those locations. We've actually transformed that location. We didn't actually totally shut down. We just stopped selling cannabis. We've actually installed uh, some uh, drug analysis machines. And now we're Canada's biggest center to come and get street drugs tested. You can bring in any street drug to us and not so much cannabis, but any kind of you know, cocaine or MDMA or heroin or whatever. And we'll analyze it on our spectrometer and tell you exactly what's in it. And if there's fentanyl in it and what else is going on. And we also accept uh, people by mail as well or samples by mail too. And we're, we're the biggest place to get through one of the only ones in the biggest place in Canada to get your drugs tested now. And I think that's an important service, not just for finding fentanyl, but also any other, you know, other weird things in your MDMA. There's something called PMA that's often put into MDMA as a, as a mixer, but it's, it's, it can be quite harmful and, so, we're offering that service uh, there. But do you get paid for that
1: from the person who brings it in? Is there no, fee-
0: we, we, we encourage people to make a $5 donation, but we don't. It's not mandatory at all. And uh, that donation would really just cover the cost of the person working the machine. The machines itself are not cheap, it's over $40,000 to buy one of these things, right? Wow. So, it was a substantial investment for us, but I think it's an important service to offer.
1: Well, and, the, government, is the municipalities and the government's encouraging this because that, to me, makes so much sense given the given the well, crises we have with yeah, drugs. Know, Vancouver Coastal Health has, a, a, I think, one or two of these machines as well.
0: Uh, but they don't really run them very often. And, and I was talking to them about that. And they got the funding to buy the machines, but nobody's giving them money to operate them or to have their people working them. And so they're not operating at all right now. Their machines are sitting idle. They've actually contacted us. They're one of their technicians, their main technician, quit or, or had to move on recently. So they don't have a person to operate. They were calling us and seeing if they could give us a contract to go do some testing down on one of the overdose prevention sites there. And, and they were supposed to send me a contract a few days ago, and they haven't. But we're just going to start doing it anyways, regardless of whether they pay us or not, just to make the service available. I don't want to wait for their bureaucracy.
1: But you're saving lives.
0: Yeah, it's a very important work. I think it's very crucial, and uh, and you know it's all subsidized by our cannabis money and our our cannabis dispensary because we still have one location left. Like you were saying, we had two. One's been shut down, transformed into this Get Your Drugs Tested Center. tested dot com. Check it out. And then uh, our other one is is really quite busy because when we shut down our one location, many other places also got shut down. So they're all coming to us now. So our spot on Thurlow is quite busy. It is in the process of of, of getting a, a legal permit from the province and transitioning into the legal system, something I do not want to do. We're only really doing that just to keep everybody off our back because if we say we're refusing to join the legal system, then they're going to come and attack us. So we are moving down that pathway as slowly as we can. If and when they grant us a permit, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do. I, I don't want to, it's not that I'm against selling legal cannabis, but I know that if we switched over, our customers would all stop coming to us because we would no longer have the products that they want from us. You have to
1: buy it through and the government. So,
0: you know, we'll see what happens, but maybe we'll, we'll get that per, maybe we'll be able to sell it to somebody else or do something or whatever. I'm not really sure where this is going to go. And I feel like our options are kind of narrowing as we move down this, this pathway. But, um but I, my goal is to keep providing cannabis to those who need it for as long as that service is needed. And if if we lose our storefront and we have to switch to mail order only and a home delivery service or something like that, we will do that. And like I said, it's not so much my obstinateness that I refuse to join the legal system or anything. I wish the legal system was better and that we weren't needed. I said, I'd be happy to close my place down. If the legal system was so great that we're not needed anymore, then my job is done. But it's a long way from that happening, and we're actually really busy at Thurlow. Because so many other dispensaries have been shut down. We're one of the last ones standing still.
1: Yeah. Well, I can test to that because I drive by there all the time. Now, coming, I got to do a follow up question to your drug testing lab. What's the ratio, what are the statistics you're getting on contaminated products coming into being tested? Is it pretty high, is it medium? Are you getting this? Well,
0: it's, uh, I mean, there's more contaminants, or if that's even the right word, than just fentanyl, right? So fentanyl is an issue we actually publish all of our results on our website. So anybody can go and we sort it by city as well, because we get samples from all across the country. So if you're in Calgary and you got a Mickey mouse pill or whatever, you can go to our site and do a search and see if anybody else had that in for testing. And maybe that'll give you an idea of what you've, what you've got. So we're trying to make it the knowledge available to everybody in the country. Uh, but yeah, definitely. I mean, we get some samples in that are, that are totally pure as well. We, you know, the top things being tested are typically cocaine and MDMA. Uh, we do get everything in there and we do get, you know, we get synthetic cannabinoids, we get uh, heroin and fentanyl and that kind of stuff. But for a lot of people, because also we're not an injection site, so less people are coming in with injectable drugs. But but uh, in the cocaine and the MDMA, certainly some of them are, are high quality samples and some of them are, are contaminated with some quite harmful substances. And sometimes we'll put on an alert if it's something quite dangerous or bad that's in there that can kill people. We will tweet about it and put it on the social media and try to let people know this is an issue, uh, but it varies. And we get people coming in as regular customers. We also get people who are clearly dealers coming in as well. They'll have a binder with 12 or 15 different samples and little pouches and they want to get their stuff tested. And it makes sense because dealers don't know what they're selling either. They're buying a substance from one person and breaking it down, selling it to others. A lot of dealers, most dealers in my experience are people who want to provide a quality product to their customers and want to know what they're selling and being able to to compete and, to, and often they believe in the benefits of these substances that they're offering. So again, I think that's great people coming and finding out what they're selling, making their decisions and, and that. Uh, but there's definitely people that discover that what they've got is not what they were told it was and they shouldn't be taking it. And they're grateful to us to be able to provide that information.
1: Okay. So what's your website again? It's it's
0: getyourdrugstested.com. Getyourdrugstested.com. We take samples anywhere in the country. If you come in in person, we can give you the sample back. And we only need a very tiny, tiny amount, like the equivalent of a few grains of salt. It's like a hundredth of a gram is fine. Uh, We put it under the machines about the size of a bread box. It shines an infrared laser onto the chemical and then it analyzes the light spectrum that comes out and matches that against a database of of all different types of chemical
1: substances. Wow. I think that's phenomenal. I didn't know that about you. Yeah, it's I mean people think of me as a cannabis
0: activist and certainly that's I am and that's an important thing, but to me it's always been bigger than just cannabis. It's about the whole war on drug users and all of these different substances uh, all have their roles and and in most cases what we call the war on drugs is really a war on on plant medicines that are sacred indigenous medicines of you know, coca leaves, peyote, psilocybe mushrooms, opium poppies, these are all things with a long, long history of of uh, traditional, medicinal, spiritual, cultural use and that have been perverted and changed through colonialism and, and Western imperialism into these sometimes very dangerous substances. Uh, so to me, cannabis is just the first step on a much longer path of, of ending all all drug prohibition.
1: Now, you remind me, I started this uh, Uh, podcast talking about a quote uh, from Benjamin Franklin but you kind of remind me of him because he lived outside of his own skin because he was so busy so active and you were very active with all this stuff. Now you're also an active author and written several books. you got any more books on the horizon? I do. I finished a novel a a few months ago that I've, I've
0: been trying to find a publisher for it haven't been able to do so uh, the books that I've written so far, I wrote a parody called Harry Pothead and the Marijuana Stone, which is a Harry Potter parody. I've got uh, Green Buds and Hash, which is a pretty short little poem, but beautifully illustrated, and that's by far my top seller. It's a, a Green Eggs and Ham parody, uh, and the book I just finished writing is it's uh, it's called The Hashtastic Voyages of Sinbad the Strain Hunter, and it's uh, it's a play on the Sinbad stories yeah. with lots of cannabis fun mixed in, and a kind of uh, parodies or plays with a lot of uh, different kind of uh, books and, and stories, some Gulliver's Travels things in there and different kind of aspects like that. I'm quite happy with it, but finding a publisher is challenging for anybody. I usually end up sending it to a few people, then when I get rejected, like Harry Potter, I sent it out to many publishers. A lot of them were quite interested, but said they were worried about getting sued. Same with, the, same with the green uh, Buds and Hash book. There's no, Sinbad's got no copyright on that. That's all public domain, right? But but uh, usually, I end up publishing my books myself. I don't really take rejection from from uh, publishers and agents very well, so I get a few rejection letters. And I, you know, I know that's a part of writing, but I end up doing it myself.
1: So, if somebody wants to buy one of these books, where do they get them?
0: Well they can go to Amazon or they can visit me at potheadbooks.com and I've Pothead also got
1: books.com. Potheadbooks.com. potheadbooks.com. Okay, I found some websites I got a visit out of there. There you
0: go. And I've actually got one other book that I wrote that's also illustrated. It's called The Illustrated History of Cannabis in Canada. Well that and, sounds like uh, a good one. That one I I'm really proud of that book, you know, and it took me over over twenty years to write it off and on. Uh, and it's all beautifully illustrated in black and white, and I'm working on a color edition now. But I learned so much about Canadian history and cannabis writing that book. And you'd think someone like me would have been an expert on this stuff already, but there's so many stories that I learned that people just aren't aware of about the history of cannabis in Canada, how integral it was to the first uh, co- colonies that came here, the French and the English, how how widespread cannabis use was in Canada during the 1800s. You could buy pre-rolled joints for like 50 years at Canadian pharmacies uh, quite readily from the 18 late 1800s to early 1900s. Uh, and and it, it it's extremely integral to our country's history in a way that the vast majority of Canadians don't aren't aware. They sort of think of cannabis as something that started in the 1960s and cannabis started in the 60s and now we're here, but before the 60s, they were using a lot of cannabis in Canada for hundreds of years, and the irony is that for the first 200 years or so of Canada, governments were pushing people to grow more cannabis and trying to force colonists and force early Canadians to grow more hemp, for the ropes and sails for the French and, and British navies. And there was a lot of punishments and rewards and efforts to grow it. And then once cannabis started becoming popular, uh, this, in the 1900s, uh, the effort was to stop it entirely. And the government's, you know, the people in the government's reversed where people didn't really want to grow hemp earlier on. It's a lot of work and they'd rather grow food crops. And the government was like, we need more hemp, grow more cannabis. And then now people want to grow cannabis and the government's like, stop growing that We want to make this plant extinct. And, uh, and so it's a fascinating history and it's something that I really, uh, I think more Canadians should know about. I'm working on a longer book that takes a lot of the information from the illustrated version and just digs into it into more depth and everything. But it's a fascinating story and one that I wish more Canadians uh,
1: were aware of. Wow. That's amazing. So the books are available at Amazon. Yeah. Amazon and potheadbooks.com. Pothead books. And do you sell them in your dispensary?
0: Oh yeah. And they're at, they're in, they're in bookstores and that kind of stuff, uh, You know, we're in some mainstream bookstores and we're at some... Are
1: you in Banyan Books down on uh, West I don't think so. I'm not totally always sure where
0: my books are being sold, but I don't think we're in Banyan Books as far as I know. Uh, We have some mainstream distribution, but we're not in as many bookstores as I would like to be.
1: So is writing
0: a secret passion of yours? Well, if it's a secret or not, but I've always done a lot of writing. I mean, for 10 years, I was editor of Cannabis Culture magazine, and that was a lot of writing, not so much fiction, but... I mean I would write, you know, half of that magazine myself and then edit and work with authors and writers and that on the rest of it. Uh so I've always liked writing and information and that kind of stuff. Writing fiction, I wish I could do more of that. Uh but it would require me doing a lot less of the other things that I do and um I kind of, you know, I I wish I could get more books out there. I sort of feel that's maybe a legacy in some way that I I'd, I'd like to have more written Written stories and things. I really, I love writing fiction. It's also a lot of work. I mean, it, it's 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 not. It's it's fun, but it's it's definitely work writing these kind of books as well. Uh, but uh, but I find I spend more of my time on political work and activism and business and that kind of stuff than I do uh, making up fantastical hashtastical voyages for Sinbad the Strain Hunter.
1: So coming back to political work, if John Horrigan was sitting here and he sat down and said, uh, let's have a conversation about cannabis, what would you tell him? And talk, a couple of quick uh, points know,
0: he'd say to him. Know, last time I saw John Horgan, I, I, I probably didn't get along very well. I told him that he was responsible for the war on drugs. It's his war on drugs now. You're the premier. You have the power to decriminalize, and all these overdose deaths are on you, John. It's it's you're the guy who can make the choice. And he was like, well, I, know. I had like a 30-second talk with him, and it was pretty awkward. You know, I talked to these NDP guys. I, I should be making small talk and being friendly, but I end up being like, There's an overdose crisis. What are you doing? Why aren't you not decriminalizing? And then they don't want to talk to me anymore. But on, on cannabis, I mean, I would just say, John, like I know that you are a cannabis user who enjoys cannabis. I know that a lot of your caucus, you know, smokes cannabis and uses it. Where is the motivation for these laws coming from? Who was lobbying saying we don't want anybody to see your cannabis plant or you have to go to jail? I don't understand what, like why that, why some of these laws were passed. I don't think British Columbians were rallying or pushing for these kind of things. And so I don't really get where these decisions are being made or, or why they are doing. I can understand if, if it was really unpopular and they're trying to appeal to the majority of people in the province, but I just don't get where some of these things are coming from. Uh, but uh, I would try to get them high first so we could get on the same level <laughs> and then maybe have a real conversation about it. But you know, I, I said, I know, I mean, I know a lot of these guys. I, I know Adrian Dix. I mean, we're not buddies, but I've, I've talked to him many, many times. I've known him since 2011. We all got to know each other really well on the campaign trail running for the leadership. We spent a lot of time together traveling. It was a huge campaign all around the province. So we would all kind of go in a group and hear each other's speeches over and over again. And I talked to Adrian Dix also, the BC Minister of Health, and I can't, Get him to to acknowledge the overdose crisis, or that it's like as minister of health, it's his responsibility to decriminalize people and to provide a safe drug supply. You asked about cannabis, and I'm talking about the overdose crisis. To me, it's really the more important issue in many ways. But I mean, I I, I just I can understand that. But I, I, I when it comes to cannabis, I just wish that they would get rid of some of this stigma and some of this ridiculousness that they've put in place. Um, I'm hoping that in the next couple of years we'll see change in British Columbia and see these 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 laws change, but the problem is once they get passed, it's very hard to alter this stuff, right? They do the work, they pass these laws and then to go back and revisit them and make changes, they got other stuff to do. They don't want to go back and do that again, at least not for a few years. Uh, So I think John Horgan knows that I'm disappointed in him and that I really thought more, he was going to do more. I endorsed him for the leadership in 2011. He didn't get it. Adrian Dix did. And then Adrian kind of snatched defeat from the jaws of victory against Christy Clark in that election. But, uh, I mean, I like John Horgan on a personal level, and I think he's a fine human being and a good guy, and I think he's well intentioned. And so I don't really understand what why they pass some of these things. I just don't get it. I know I come from a very different perspective, and my priorities are very different, but I, I would encourage him to to change these things and to 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 treat cannabis users with dignity and respect because that's what we deserve, like any other human beings.
1: Well, I from my perspective, and we've only been in the cannabis world a few about two years now. Uh, in terms of learning and understanding. We've gone to a ton of cannabis conferences, a lot of discussions. Uh, We are just at the ICBC conference down at the Bayshore Hotel, went to Toronto to Lyft and a bunch of other conferences, Niagara Falls. And there's no one there at these conferences from government. And to me, people who have been in the cannabis business for years, like you, and other people who have been in the uh, retailing cannabis and producers and processors, they are to cannabis what NASA is to space. You know the system, but there's been no real dialogue between government with you folks on how to do this thing, how to roll it out, how to run it, and everything else. And I think there's a need for more dialogue. That's my personal take on it. I just don't see these people at these cannabis conferences from government being part of the discussion. They didn't put up on the wall a map that said, this is how we're thinking of rolling it out, folks, and what we're thinking of doing. What do you guys think?
0: I mean, Health Canada did go around and and have some, you know, before legalization came in, there was a a, a committee and they went and heard things. I mean, ironically, some of the folks in that committee are all now working for Canopy, uh, the biggest cannabis company, Canopy Tweed, right? And I don't know if that means they had conflicts of interest or not, but it certainly doesn't look good when you're working, you know, you're the one putting the rules in place, and then as soon as you're done doing that, you go take a a job for one of the companies that you were just involved in regulating. You know, uh, some of the individuals I know, I don't, I don't, think they're bad folks or that they're necessarily even biased, but it certainly creates a perception that they were creating rules for a certain group of people to benefit those people. And then when they get done making those rules, they go get a job with those people to get rewarded for, for what they did. Um, And so that, that's a big issue in terms of people people trusting the system and believing this was done in the right way. It really seems like if you want to make money in the cannabis world or get involved, you need a former prohibitionist politician or police on your board uh, to to make that headway So many cops <clears throat> and politicians <clears throat> Especially politicians who made their careers off of Opposing legalization and, and demonizing cannabis users You know, Brian Mulroney, uh, when he was a uh, uh, prime minister he, he was the first one to use the phrase war on drugs He passed section 462.2 of the criminal code Which prohibited Cheech and Chong movies and grow books And was an incredibly a strict censorship law against the cannabis culture and put in some very harsh penalties. Well, now he's on the board of directors of a big cannabis company. And they ask him, do you see hypocrisy there? And he's like, no, I don't see any it. It's not the same thing at all. And it was illegal then. And now it's legal. It's like, yeah, but you were the guy who kept it illegal then. And there's many, many examples of that, you know, and I'm not, a, I mean, I'm happy if somebody is, is a prohibitionist and they say, I'm not going to do that anymore. I believe in legalization and I believe in cannabis now. And I want to, I realize I was wrong. That's great. We want that but when they're like refusing to acknowledge that there was ever any error in the first place, they continue often to demonize the cannabis growing community and be like, don't buy from those guys. They're all hell's angels and violent criminals. Buy from me. I'm a former cop. You can trust our grow. Well, that is really disturbing and and bothersome to me. Right. So I think that that's a thing that a lot of people in the cannabis community don't like. We're seeing our enemies uh, uh, taking over our industry and continuing to demonize us and attack us and punish us and want to put us in jail and that doesn't seem like legalization. That seems like a huge co-opting, and a corporatization and and, and a takeover that's not really appropriate.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I think that I, I'm I'm I agree with you that I think things are going to change and I think the future is only going to get better. It's I, got I, to get better. I think I agree
0: with that. You know, I think that we <clears throat> you know a few months after legalization it was pretty much like, it's not going to get worse than that. Right. It took the, some of the provincial laws came in and I do think things are only going to improve from now on. And I think a well, lot before this, it was often we get a little better. A lot of our victories as cannabis activists were stopping something bad from happening. Oh, the government's going to pass this terrible law and we delayed it and stopped it from getting passed. Yay us. Well, that's fine, but that's really not, that's like a, a reaction to, and now I think that cannabis does have momentum people are more accepting of it. And I think a lot of Canadians uh, are more willing to see the cannabis laws change more. And they're seeing that legalization didn't create all these problems. All the people saying the sky was going to fall. None of that happened. And so I think that we've got the opportunity to make more positive changes. It really depends on how you look at things, right? I mean, a year ago in Vancouver, it was way easier to buy cannabis. There was way more dispensaries. Two years ago, there was over a hundred dispensaries in the city. Cannabis is very accessible and very affordable. And now, that number has gone down drastically. So that doesn't seem right when it's legalization. There's less places to buy it, it's less accessible. But, you know, there's also, I mean, the biggest enforcement aspect of cannabis prohibition has always been possession charges or possession arrests. Maybe not charges, but the biggest thing was like 60,000 ish every year possession arrests. And that number has dropped down. It's not going to be zero under real legalization, it should be zero. But it's going to be a, maybe double digits or a triple digit number. It's not going to be in the thousands and thousands. And in Vancouver, we kind of get spoiled because nobody's getting charged with possession in Vancouver. No one's getting harassed for that. But in the rest of the country, especially in smaller communities, when you're further north, especially in Canada, the enforcement of cannabis and drug laws, it, it, it's really a southern northern thing if you live in the southern areas and the bigger cities are treated way differently when you go up to Nunavut and Northwest Territories and yeah. that the the, the the ratio of arrest is way way higher and charges are way higher like off the charts so those communities I think are going to see much more of a benefit and that they're not going to get harassed for possession so much marginalized people first nations people uh, other kind of groups like that I think who have been the real targets they're going to be able to breathe a little bit easier but in terms of the industry it's a, a lot of it's really gone the wrong way, I think. But, you know, it's not all bad. I think that there's good aspects to legalization as well. And I hope we can just improve on the good aspect and then make them more and try to fix the problems that are there. But it is a many, many years ahead of work to, to be done to really get where we want to be.
1: Yeah. Well, listen, thank you very much for being part of uh, our podcast today. Uh, We've got to wrap it up, but I would love to have you come back and do it again after the world of edibles come out and maybe six months after edibles and see how things are going and keep me posted on how you're doing with respect to your applications and where you're going from here.
0: Sure. And I've got to pick up your books. Yeah, we didn't even get to talk about my mushroom dispensary, but I'll okay, just put up mushroomdispensary.com. We're selling microdoses of, uh, of psilocybin mushrooms. Okay, r- r- mail r- okay, let's take a minute here and talk <laughs>
1: about this. Mushroom dispensary. Okay, run, run this back. This,
0: this will be the last, this is my last big project or whatever. But a few months ago, I launched an online uh, medicinal mushroom dispensary focusing on microdoses, and microdoses are like sub-threshold levels, maybe 10% or 5% of what you'd normally take for like a, a full-on psychedelic experience. A lot of benefits to microdosing. Uh, uh, mushrooms, I think, are probably even more safe than cannabis, certainly on par with cannabis in terms of, of safety and lack of harm and, and potential medical benefit. And uh, so it, it's gotten quite a bit of controversy because one of the Vancouver city councillors, Melissa Genova, and her and I spar a lot about 420 and about other things, and she's not really a big fan of, of my work. But I said I was going to open a storefront in Vancouver to sell medicinal mushroom microdoses Uh, once we got the mail order going and she had a motion at city council to stop this from happening and to try to shut down any potential. And the rest of the counselors kind of just laughed at her and said, this isn't even an issue. Why are we debating the mushroom, microdose mushroom sales in the middle of an overdose crisis? And they all voted against her, against her motion and it died. Right. But, uh, but we, we've been serving people all across the country. I've got well over 500 members now over the last couple of months, and I'm getting some wonderful feedback from people. And with microdosing, you're just taking said a very small amount somewhere in the range of maybe a 10th of a gram of mushrooms. Uh, and we do them in capsules and we do them all up real nice and, and standardized and everything. And you might take that twice a week or once every two or three days. Uh, and it provides incredible benefits for anxiety, uh, for depression, for PTSD and other kind of mood disorders. And, um, and they're really quite healing and beneficial. So it, to me, it's another step on the path. My, my perception is that we use this model of civil disobedience and dispensaries to overgrow the government. And I really think that one of the reasons the laws changed is that there was 500 stores across the country openly selling cannabis already and they couldn't stop us. So they had to kind of join us and create legalization. And I want to use those same tactics to then make psychedelics and entheogens available like mushrooms in a regulated way. And we really should have opium dispensaries too and let people have safe access to opiates in kind of a grassroots Kind of way, there's been talks of like heroin compassion clubs in Vancouver and trying to start that kind of model, which I fully support. And so this mail order uh microdose mushroom dispensary to me is part of this process. There's a lot of research just starting into mushroom or like it's been going on for a while. But recently there's been a bunch of new research and new programs being launched and new businesses and, and money in, involved in that. And that's great. But I, I'm more of just of a why delay, let's get it done now kind of a person. It is against the law, just like my cannabis dispensary is. And I'm hoping that because it's just microdoses and it's medically focused, you got to have some kind of medical documentation to become a member that we'll be able to avoid, you know, the VPD will hopefully make the same kind of choices they're making around cannabis that they will around this. But there is a risk involved for me to do this certainly. And uh, it's, it's a challenge, but uh yeah mushroomdispensary.com another website for you there and it's and a mush, it's a mushrooming business it it's definitely growing yeah it's a mush, it's a <laughs> and uh, and I, I hope that others will imitate this you know when i launched my cannabis dispensary 11 years ago what made us different i think cuz i wasn't certainly wasn't the first guy to open a cannabis dispensary we were the third one in vancouver and there were several others across the country what made us different is that i taught others how to copy us and people would come in and i would show them everything about how we ran our place we would spend hours with people answering all their questions and teaching them how to open their own dispensary and say, go off, open your own one and then pay it forward. Right. And, and teach others. And, and I think that that was, it was by no means single handed, but I think that I really helped plant a lot of seeds that grew into this dispensary movement across Canada. We were very influential in making that happen. And I think that I would love to see people imitating this mushroom dispensary and, and, and getting it out there. And hopefully nothing happens to me, and I find others go, well, Dana did it, and nobody busted him, so I'm going to open one too. Yeah. And that would be great. If a year from now there's you know, dozens of places across Canada offering different forms of entheogenic therapy and psychedelics and that in a medicinally kind of focused way, that to me would be a huge a huge step forward.
1: Wow, that's exciting news. God, you're yeah, busy a busy guy. Good. Dana, so there you go, thanks. Dana. Thanks for coming in this afternoon. Hey, my and pleasure. Keep in touch. Thank you very much. This has been a wonderful afternoon to learn hearing about all this. Thanks a lot. Thank you. My pleasure.
0: The preceding podcast was recorded at Studio 710 in downtown Vancouver, the home of Jade Maple. For more information, follow us online at RisingTideConsultants.ca.